This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. It's been a couple weeks. I missed you all. It's it's so good to be back and uh, to, to have another incredible panel of guests here. And uh, yeah, as you can see, this is a clear day in Los Angeles. It's been uh, been a while. It's it's been a bit wild out here, but uh, hopefully, it's going to start clearing up pretty soon. But uh, without further ado. Let me introduce our guest today, Stephen Keel, Arquitos Capital. What's going on, Stephen? Good much. Good to see you, Bobby. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, Good to see you too, man. We got your own Neymar back on the show from One Main Capital. What's up, your own? I'm good, man. Been on vacation for a little while, but I'm I'm taking the call from the beach over here, so all good. I can tell. I mean, look, I was I was saying we were saying offline. The waves look amazing. I'm gonna be coming to join you in a very very short. Yeah, the water's warm over here. Yeah, let's do it, man. And then also joining us is host of, or co-host of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fury. It's Gary Reby. Gary, what's up, dude? Ahoy, ahoy. How's everyone? Good, man. Good. Thanks for joining us. All right. Flannel, so, it's flannel wearing weather. It's fall. I, 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 wish, I wish I got the memo. Gary, you got to tell me these things, man. It's, it's uh, the, the, the dress code for today is hillbilly chic. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, I want to dig right in. You know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it to your own first because it's been I think it's been about a month, month and a half since we last had you on here. So your own, what's been going on uh, since you joined the TIR roundtable? No, that's like okay. Th since TIR, the investor. TIR. Um, yeah, busy uh, <laughs> trying to find you know the next multi baggers for the portfolio. Um, I had someone join me at one main to help, uh, me on the off side and, um, and I took a little bit of time off at the end of August. So that's kind of what's been going on. Nice. So where exactly did you go? I mean, it was, it, was it, I mean, are, and are you currently still there? I am not currently still there. I'm back in Williamsburg in my apartment. Um, but I did some family vacations with my family and then my wife's family. Uh, we were in the Hamptons and we were on, we rented a lake house somewhere and we did nice. kind of, uh, and then we spent a Uh-oh. On your own, you cut out. Where, where, I, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. You cut out. Where, where was the, where'd you go with the, the last part? Uh, Fire Island off of Long Island. Gotcha, yeah, that was, nice. that was, with, that was with friends and, um, and then did two family vacations with my family and my wife's family. Awesome. It was, it was good. It was fun. Nice. Yeah. I mean, look, this is the time of the year that everybody goes on vacation. Maybe not like what we normally do and maybe flying somewhere, but, you know, doing a, we, we just did an Airbnb in Palm Springs and it was, uh, to, to say the least, it was, it was nice to get out. It's been, it's been a few months since we've uh, done anything. So it's, it's good. To yeah. Been a tough slog for hotels and airlines, but great for Airbnbs. I mean, did they did they file the registration statement yet, or the secret registration statement? Yeah, maybe they all <laughs> confidentially. I haven't seen it uh, a public one, but I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting read. I mean, 
they're benefiting car, you know, car dealers and car rental companies are benefiting and the airlines and the hotels are struggling, but, um, I'd sure like to see them, I'd like to see them go public through a, a SPAC, preferably yeah. the one that I own. <laughs> you own the, the Bill Ackman one? That's the one that yeah. they, if they come. Uh, that would be interesting if, if they ended up doing that one. We'll talk about valuation later and how we look at these things. But yeah, uh, I actually uh, have a position in a company called Pendrel that is, is uh, kind of a pink sheet company, but they're sponsoring a SPAC called Helicity right now. So if it goes through, it'll be very lucrative. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've, we've spoken about it in one of the other uh, roundtable conversations we had, but for the most part, it's just an, an enrichment scheme for the sponsors. I mean, every once in a while you have a sponsor that does the right thing. Um, but a lot of times it's an enrichment scheme for the sponsors. So if you own someone who is the sponsor, then you're going to do well. That's right. Well, you know, then on the other hand, we had the snowflake just come public here and you say, well, how much got say. left on the table there, right? What's, so, what's that one? I haven't, I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> the the you know, largest. The thing, I mean, great ticker symbol. And uh, another connection, we had an intro West Resorts was a, a big winner, went private, uh, let's say three, four years ago now. And, and somehow the snow ticker symbol has been out there and now it's been picked up uh, from, from the ski operator to the whatever Snowflake does. I, I honestly have not looked at the S1, but. I watched the roadshow video and, you know, some of it made sense to me and then some of it was just way above my head. Like I, like it's, it, they, they said, it seemed, to, it seemed to me that they said a lot of the right things, but like, like if you put a gun to my head to describe what it is that they really do, I, I, I don't, I, I think I might wind up on the floor. Well, can't you just go talk to Ted? Ted Weschler in town, aren't you uh, nearby? Just swing by and see see why he committed uh, a couple hundred million dollars to it. Yeah, that was amazing. Like, like they essentially just lent their brand to this uh, to this roadshow. I think two weeks ago, pra practically nobody but you know a few really tech deep tech people probably knew what this was, and then uh, all of a sudden we had people calling up saying, "I want to I want to get in on this, and I don't care what the price is." And we're like, "Are you sure you want to do that?" Yeah, and uh, it's just, and pe it was. I, I was astonished yesterday. I, I, I thought I literally, I thought they broke something. And was it on the Nasdaq? Like, because it, it didn't finally didn't even start trading until two, right? Like, yeah. Well, what's it trading at? What's it trading at today? I'm gonna take um, a look. I don't know. I don't know. We're gonna do real time. It's real in time. a bear market right now. It's down to two hundred thirty-five dollars. Uh, it's down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the, the craziest thing. Yesterday. The craziest thing is that they um, Berkshire Hathaway subscribed to the IPO at the IPO price instead of at a predetermined price, and then the underwriters went out and advertised that Berkshire Hathaway was subscribing to the IPO, which raised the IPO price significantly, allowed them to raise the IPO price significantly. So, like Berkshire Hathaway hurt themselves by lending their name to the IPO without getting a pre, you know, they should have locked in the price for themselves, for them and Salesforce, but whatever. Um, <laughs> well, you know, this, than I am. Right. This does, I, I don't understand it. You gotta be, I mean, you gotta wonder, right. What's, what was going on behind the scenes? I mean, what kind of demand was there that if they, if they would, you know, maybe not allow for a total, 
the size allotment they otherwise would have had if they would have go down, gone down that route or something like that. There had to have been something behind the scenes uh, going on that we might not know of for a while. But that does kind of go into our discussion, Bobby. You know, it's like, how do you value these things? And obviously, outside investors valued this significantly more simply because uh, of Berkshire's involvement, which is a yep. little bit disturbing when you look at bottom-up fundamental analysis and wonder whether it's dead or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, get kind of getting right into it, just to kind of brief everybody, uh, I, I ask every week, uh, or I try to ask every week, you know, some topics for us to talk about here that you want to hear. And one tweet came in that I thought was really fascinating is really determining the current value of a company. Uh, assuming microcaps are inefficient, can this be done without looking at current stock price? And, um, and I'm going to give credit to who sent that tweet in a minute. I was not prepared and didn't have it pulled up, but I will, I promise I will give credit to that tweet in a second, but you know, kind of not, not trying to start, I guess, kind of to start out the conversation, but I don't know if this is necessarily just for a microcap conversation. Yes. It's easy to use it with microcaps as kind of the overall, you know, uh, this is where inefficiency naturally is. But, you know, at least when it comes to valuation and not looking at stock price, it's a great example right there when, you know, there, you can't ever really pinpoint to one thing as to why something will be of value or go up in value because every situation can be different. You know, let, let's, let's start off right there. I mean, uh, Stephen, kick it off. You, I think to you, your you point, to, you pushed the segue. So we're going to, yeah, you. No, to your, to your point, exactly though. It's not just micro caps in a normal environment where you might have an information advantage, uh, have a better opportunity for an information advantage in some smaller companies. That makes sense. But in today's environment, you're getting mispricings all over the place. And uh, poor Burton Malkiel, you know, with his random walk down Wall Street. I mean, <laughs> this is, look, how do you value these companies? Uh, are we in some sort of a late 90s situation again? Are we in some sort of a, uh, in a different industry, uh, 06, 07 situation, real estate? Or, and I just don't know because, you know, have things caused structural changes? right in terms of analysis because you know historically you would look at some sort of fixed expenses or, or things uh, capital intensive expenses that you you would have on the business be on the balance sheet and you'd be able to have some predictability about uh, you know what their returns could be over time if you're like a railroad or something like that and today those expenses uh, those fixed expenses aren't always showing up on the balance sheet uh, they're a little bit more esoteric, you know, if it's customer acquisition costs and things like that, or the stickiness of those customers, uh, you know, or the, the idea that the more breadth you have because of this network effect, the more valuable than those current customers are in the future. Well, how do you determine that? These are all kind of esoteric things floating around that it makes sense in your mind, but the, the ability to have predictability and from that, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years out is very, very difficult. And the fact that a lot of these expenses are, they're expensed, they're not capitalized. So they're not on the balance sheet. And it's difficult then for investors like me who look to the balance sheet and I try to make some, you know, long-term predictions on uh, reinvestment opportunities and, and, and things like that. It's really difficult to do in some of those companies, and I think that's why I'd push back a little bit. I think on the concept that it's not on the balance sheet. I think it is on the balance sheet, it's just not in the line items that you normally see. So it tends to show up in 
um, you know, the diluted share counts. And essentially, a lot of these, I'll, I'll talk about the tech companies because they're the ones that are most high profile for doing this. I mean, they're, they're, what they, a lot of these tech companies are doing are essentially having their employees finance their growth. And, you know, stock comp is just a form of, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a form of financing for the companies. Um, so it, it is, I think it is winding up on the balance sheet. It's just in a different spot and it appears in a different way. Um, not to say that, that what you're saying isn't, isn't true because there are, are all kinds of expenses that are being run through the P&L that aren't, you know, General Motors used to have to go and build the plant to meet demand. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, some of these other companies do have to invest that way too, but some of it, you're right to say that a lot of it runs through the P&L, but I think some of the stuff that runs through the P&L does also wind up on the balance sheet just in a different line item than you would historically see it, not, you know. At, no, right. Yeah, you and know, in a way that you, you can't, look, there's scrap value uh, on the ballot, you know, it, for, for a General Motors plant or something like that. And uh, these things get reviewed and written down over time. And so you can at least have a better estimation of what that liquidation value is or, or something along those lines. We're here, you know, yeah, to your point, you, you, there are certain areas now that are subsidizing long-term growth for a company. Part of that is payroll. Um, and, and part of that is um, dilution, not just, through, not, not just through stock options, things like that, but also through kind of continual capital raises. Yeah. I mean, I, I, back to the original topic, I mean, I think that um, in today's world, more than ever, you have to be able to value a company, especially if you're looking at small caps without looking at the share price, because, um, I mean, there's this trend that's been going on for five to 10 years now, the shift to passive, and that shift to passive has caused much more distortment in asset prices that are smaller, because what you're having is assets are being moved away from active managers towards these passive ETFs and passive ETFs are um, market cap weighted. So all that money is flowing into the big caps and it's leaving these small caps. And so um, there's a, just a liquidity issue that's causing price distortions in all these small caps. I mean, if you have um, small managers who are getting redemption and they have to sell illiquid securities, then all of a sudden they're not fundamental sellers, they're forced sellers. And so that can lead to a lot of distortions in prices. And it's not, a, not you know, the same type of um, distortion across the board, you know, some things get, um, you know, too cheap and some things are still too expensive on a small cap line. So I think that you have to be able to value things without looking at the stock price. And that's, I mean, that's part of how you find opportunity these days. I think that um, when you're trying to value things without looking at the price, um, I think that you have to figure out, is this business at a steady state? Is it a steady state kind of like a two or 3% grower? If it's at a steady state maturity level, typically you can use a multiple as a proxy. You know, if it's a high quality business that has high returns on capital, it could return most of its free cash flow to shareholders and still achieve that steady state growth rate. Then maybe it's a market plus multiple. And if it's a lower quality business, that's less stable and more cyclical and has to reinvest all its free cash flow to achieve that steady state growth. And maybe it's you know it's a lower than market multiple, but if 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 the business is not at a steady state and it's rapidly growing, I think you need to be able to look out to you know whatever year you think it's going to reach that steady state growth and apply a multiple to that year and, and kind of discount it back or look at what the IRR IRR would be from today's price to the future price, um, and obviously ding the company for any cash it has to burn or any dilution it needs to. Um, you know, give its shareholders to get to that steady state point or give them credit for any cash they're going to generate over that period of time. So like 
I think valuation frameworks are more important than ever now. And I think you have to be able to value things um, without looking at the share price. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, look, the person who uh, asked this question, it, they typically would expect a response, well, okay, you're, we're doing some kind of discounted cash flow analysis and what's your terminal value and what you know, discount rate are you using, et cetera, et cetera. But I think once you, you're kind of uh, been in the business for a while, you know, I'm, I didn't come up as an analyst, I came up as a lawyer. I don't view it like that. I don't do, I mean, I do back of the envelope type of thing, but I don't use discounted cash. So I, don't, I don't create big models on those things. Um, because if I'm in those types of names, I don't have an advantage, right? So first of all, you have to say, to look at companies and industries where you think you have some sort of competitive advantage. And if I've got to create a, you know, a, a, a large uh, model with a, a hundred tabs in it or something like that, then quite frankly, it's not cheap enough and I probably don't have an advantage in it. So I'm more of a special situation uh, investor and that, that requires a little bit of uncertainty. And so, you know, you apply everything that your own just said but I'm looking at kind of balance sheet first. And, you know, to, to Gary's point, I have to somehow, you know, attach some sort of long-term value to some of these items uh, that maybe are either don't show up on the balance sheet or they're in a different way that a different way than historical value. But then you have to, you know, there's a whole qualitative uh, element to it to attempt to figure out what the company is going to look like five, seven, 10 years from now, figure out what the margins possibly may be and figure out how much of that is going to trickle down to shareholders and not be taken away by other parties associated with the company, including possibly the customers. You know, I, I, I'm going to ask this, I'm going to, I'm, I like this topic in, in the sense that I want to try and ask it actually literally, you know, because we can talk about it metaphorically of like, yeah, no, we don't look at stock price, but sometimes in the, in just the discovery phase, you might be doing some kind, you know, you might be looking at a, a few stocks and, you know, you see other recommends or you see it somewhere else. Like you, it, it almost seems that it's very impossible to even try, try and, I mean, I guess determining it, uh, it just seems impossible to not look at the price and then go from there. Is it well, actually it, physically possible? I mean, I, I, I think it, it has to be. Otherwise, how do you decide if something's interesting or not? You have to compare the current price to what you think is worth without looking at the current price. And then if there's a big gap there, that's how you decide it's an interesting investment. So like quite literally, if you're an investor, that's what you do every day is you look at the market quote and you decide what you think it's worth if there was no market quote and you compare the two. Um, I think the, the, the further out you have to look, um, the more, you know, I think the further out you have to look, the more slight changes in your assumptions have a big impact on what the value of the business is. And so that's why sometimes looking out three, four, five years can give you a very, you know, a variant reduction on a company is because if something's growing at a 3% CAGR, a 5% CAGR, a 10% CAGR, those things compound on themselves and three or five years out, those are very big differences in the range of outcomes. So um, I think that if you're willing to look a few years out and you're willing to um, underwrite, you know, assumptions that the market isn't willing to underwrite for a business, that can be a form of variant perception. Or if you look at the current, you know, earnings or, or cash flow stream of a business and you're willing to take a bet on that the quality of the business is different than the market thinks it is, that could, that could be a variant perception as well. So that's, those are kind of, you know, some ways to come up with what you think the price of an asset should be in compared to the stock price. 
I think we need to differentiate, though, between the valuation and the stock price, because the stock price is just the price. It doesn't tell you what the valuation is. It just tells you what the stock price is. But I think there's a difference between valuing the company and looking at a number, uh, you know, where, 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 does the, where does this trade on a per share basis? Um, I think you can look at things like the, the lows lists and other things like that to come up with, you know, general spots for things at least to look at. You know, just, just knowing that something is trading at $5 doesn't really tell me anything about the valuation. So um, I think you sort of need to differentiate between the two. So, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll look, you know, you know what's sold off a lot. I'm going to take a look. Um, I'm not going to take a look at what, I, what the market cap is or the enterprise value is until I'm done or what I think it is or what it, where it is now until I have some idea in my mind if I read through the financials and read up on the company a little bit about what I think maybe it should be. Um, and even then, you know, it's sort of, those things are always kind of squishy, right? Like you, like if you're doing doing valuation work, um, is, is just inherently tricky, and it's always context and theory dependent. So, you know, if you're looking at something where where it's a liquidation, your valuation framework is going to be different than looking at something where there's a lot of intangibles involved in IP, and um, there's just, just going to be inherently very different. Or an old old line company where it's you know, there's some cyclicality or, or whatever else, but um, you know. I think part of growth as an investor is knowing, you know, what kind of valuation you're good at and comfortable doing, what kind of valuation you're, you're not. And, um, you know, it's like Buffett says, the circle of confidence is not the size of the circle, it's knowing the edges. Um, and so, you know, for me over time, I've just sort of sought to slowly expand, you know, my framework and how I, and how I approach doing valuation. And it's different. It, it can be different if it's, a, you know, for, for RRA, we own bigger companies for clients. And so that valuation framework is maybe a little different than a microcap company where, you know, you have, you know, uh, it could be a balance sheet play or it could be a, you know, some other type of play. Um, and so they're just, I think that they're just inherently very different. Um, and part of, part of the key success of valuation is sort of knowing what's the right approach and then how do I apply it? Um, and then what kind of a, you know, what, what am I grounded in as I, as I look at something? And I just think almost every situation is sort of context and theory dependent. And so um, the more tools you have in your toolkit as you approach valuation, um, it also broadens your field of things that you can and should be looking yeah. at, which, which, I find, which I think is helpful. Yeah. And I, I, you know, look, I, you have to look at the stock price, even, at least of the competitors, as your own was mentioning. I mean, you're, you're, there's relative analysis, right? And this is kind of the difference between looking at is something reasonably priced or undervalued right now, uh, which does not necessarily have, it doesn't necessarily inform as to whether it, it is at this price today, five or seven years from now, without um, kind of looking into it. Uh, into the, the the future potential for some of those companies, but if you're looking at a particular company and say, well, from a market multiple relative to their peers, it might be cheap. Uh, you know, obviously you're looking at the other you know, stock prices, right, to determine that, and that might make it interesting to to begin to do a little bit more research on. But if you if you're then discounting that value back to today, so you're creating some sort of value five or seven, ten years from now, which is going to have a wider range of potential outcomes, but also can give you a, a possibility of a, of a significant gains if, if there's reinvestment opportunities there. You know, there could be a company, and this is what trips me up and has tripped me up historically. There's a company that is, could be extremely rich compared to its competitors today, 
based on that market multiple and deserves every piece of it and even more. You know, it still is on an absolute basis. If you go off five, seven, ten years, can be very, very, very cheap because that company is more special. And that's the challenge is to, from a, you know, quantitatively, you could say, well, it's expensive now, but, you know, whatever, cheap in the long term with certain assumptions. You're having to layer on these qualitative uh, aspects that just, just don't go into a model. They don't go into, I mean, it's experience and it's a little bit of luck sometimes. And it's like pattern recognition on, capital allocation and reinvestment opportunities at that company. And that, that makes it a little more tough, but you know, if you can acquire that skill and, and have a little bit of uh, humility based on the, the qualitative aspects, uh, that's how you get these, these 10, 100 baggers plus and the discipline to keep holding, quite frankly. Yeah. Oh, agree. Sorry, you're right. you're going to say? No, man, I was just going to say, I think a lot of times companies that look optically expensive, what we like, what people call growth companies, um, you know, when I think what allows some, you, you to bite the stock, even though it looks optically expensive, is you have, a, you know, a view on what the earnings potential in the future is. And so, like, there's a wider disparity um, in the marketplace in terms of, like, what the future earnings power of the business could be. Um, when people are looking at value stocks and they're valuing them off of this year's earnings, I think there's a wider disparity in terms of what the multiple should be, what multiple should be ascribed to those earnings. And whether you're investing in a, what people like to call growth or what people like to call value companies, if it's a value company and you think the multiple today is just too low, the market is not appreciating some qualities of this business, it's more stable than people think, it deserves a higher multiple, at the end of the day, you need to be willing to own it at that valuation over time and you own the cash flow stream, right? And if you're right about the cash flow stream being durable and you're buying it at an attractive valuation for yourself, then over time, the stock price will take care of itself. And the same th thing with a growth company. I mean, you need to be right about the future earnings power of the business if you're buying something that, where you're looking five to 10 years out. And if you are right and you're comfortable owning it at that, that, that multiple, you know, the current multiple on that future profit stream, and you're right about that future profit stream, then you, the stock price will take care of itself as well. So like, I think depending on whether you're taking a bet on what multiple something is worth, or how much profit something's going to have in the future. Like either way, you need to come to a conclusion about whether the current stock price is an attractive one or not relative to what you think those assets are worth. You know, I, I, I wondered to, to make this even more practical, right? I think it would be interesting if we all kind of answered, you know, maybe kick it over to Gary, I'll let you start. You, you discovered a company and then go to your own and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> tell you if I agree or disagree. But, you know, for, for Gary, though, not a hard question, but you discover a new company this morning. You're mm -hmm. first starting to look at it. What makes you want to look deeper into it? And then what are your first couple steps to value it and to determine if you want to, uh, you know, full, do full-fledged research? What are the first couple great, steps? Great question. Steven, you're the new host. Take over. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, sort of to be successful in this business, you sort of have to be an, uh, at first, uh, you have to have be a couple different things. One, um, if you're venturing into these very small micro cap companies, you sort of need to be an expert rock flipper and flip over a lot of rocks and sort of just be willing to look at a lot of interesting, weird or different stuff. Um, I will say that my, um, to answer your question about how do you start, it just really depends on what it is I'm, I'm looking at. So, um, and I, I, generally speaking, I think it's helpful to think about valuation. Um, valuation, in my mind, is the worst reason I sell something. Um, uh, and when I buy something, 
it may look optically expensive from time to time. It may not. Um, and I've lost more money, I think, on the optically cheap things. So I guess what I'll start by saying is you have to have, when you're valuing something, you have to have some, some idea where you think value lies. Does value lie in the here, uh, is value in the past and is, is it a value trap? Is value in the present and, and it's, in, it's reflected in the, in the current financials of the business and, you, and you're making some bet that that, that, that picture, that, that, that's going to sustain itself or get a little bit better over time as, and grow with the economy or whatever it may be, or is value in the future? And so depending on your answers of questions, it depends, it, it drives how you look at things. If I'm looking at something where I think most of the value is in the future, I, I, per, I think if you're looking at something where value is, value is in the present or value is in the future and you're, and you're buying a business that you plan on owning for a long time, I care most about the business. I care most about the, the predictability of the business, the growth drivers, um, the growth runway. Um, optionality, levers that can be pulled, all sorts of things like that. If I'm pull, if I'm, and, and so I spend more time thinking about those things and the sort of the key inputs into the income statement and then that go to the cash flow statement that go to the balance sheet, thinking through how those three things function together um, and then focusing on where do people think, where do people get things wrong in the analysis on that? So if you're doing, if you're investing in something that has an open-ended growth story and the business gets better as it gets bigger, you know, people think linearly in a linear fashion. They don't think in, in sort of a logarithmic one or, 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 or one where, where margins can blow out. So that's one that they, they tend to get wrong. Um, but if I'm, but to, to simplify this uh, is, uh, somewhat, if I'm looking at something where it, it's, the, it's, it's reflected in the financials today or, or something along those lines, I, I start the valuation by process by, like like Yarn said, I don't I don't I don't look at what the I don't look at what the valuation is. I read through the the, the K's and the Q's and I get a, get a sense in my mind where what what do I think this business based on where the market is, where this industry is, how should this business trade? You know what what should this company be worth in relation to the market? What should it be worth in relation in, in relation to its sector? And where does it trade in relation to its own trading history? And sort of get a sense of where does the valuation fall in relation to those things? And if it's cheap and on all measures, I'm implicitly making some sort of bet that um, some sort of mean reversion bet there, or I'm okay with the with the cash flow stream, and I'm just gonna you know collect that. And I, if I think that that's gonna grow, um, that's sort of where I start by just sort of thinking through all of those things. Um, and after I have some idea of what I think where I think something should trade or what I think something should be worth, then I, then I check it against where the, where the market is, where the sector is and all that other stuff and, and versus its own history. Um, that's, that's sort of my starting point. How about, how about yourself? Or yarn? <laughs> Your own? Yeah. You want to hop on? Otherwise I'm, I'm happy to, to give my perspective as well. Yeah, go ahead. I'll go after you. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I do something uh, generally called balance sheet income statement investing. And it's based on Peter Kundal had some quote, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it uh, back in the day where he basically said he buys on the balance sheet and sells on the income statement. And the idea behind that is you can get more predictability off of the balance sheet if it's if the price is relevant or uh, you know, reasonable compared to that. So even in today's environment where balance sheet characteristics are different than they are in the past, I am still looking at liquidation value. I'm looking at things that are trading below uh, book value. I'm looking for off balance sheet assets. 
whether they're actual assets that gap is just not picking up or whether it's something like tax loss carry forwards or something like that, which were valuable a few years ago, not as, not as much today, but I'm looking for a price near or below book value or liquidation value, which then there's not very many companies out there, right? That, that are, have those, those situations. And so that's why I'm heavily concentrated. The portfolio is heavily concentrated and it, I'd say the majority of my portfolio right now trades below what I consider to be liquidation value. So that's one part of it because you, you make these kind of determinations as the adjusted book value or adjusted liquidation value. And then is there a spread? So, you know, something trades at 80% of what I think it's adjusted liquidation value is you immediately get that 25% gain, but then you also want over time, reinvestment opportunities. So I'm looking for companies that are in some sort of transition that whether it's an activist investor, a change in business model, a new capital allocator came on board, et cetera, et cetera. Something that then allows this company to have reinvestment opportunities that we can own it over the long term and that can uh, you know, then begin to be valued from an income statement perspective. Because I think there are two types of investors out there. I think there are generally the Ben Graham style. There's not as many of them anymore, obviously, but the Ben Graham style looking at liquidation values, looking at, you know, Schloss and, you know, that type of approach. Um, and then there are the investors that are looking at income statement characteristics and I can get safety on the balance sheet side, but still get long-term gain possibilities by holding it through that transition. So I'm kind of, you know, both of those investors in one. Uh, but, you know, again, there's not very many companies out there. So, you know, for me, again, I'm not doing this kind of cash flow now. I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not in the beginning. I'm not thinking about um, something even 10 years out and what those characteristics might look like. I'm looking at balance sheet wise, if this thing were to liquidate or if something would not have gone as planned, am I at least breaking even operationally? And, um, and so you have to look at the stock price, right? <laughs> to that, to the, to the original question, because you're looking at liquidation value and stuff like that. And you're screening, I don't really screen a whole lot, but if I, when I would, it would be based on price to book or something like that. And then digging a little bit deeper to see if there was off balance sheet assets. And that's where there's generally opportunities is when there are things that gap just doesn't pick up. And so, and then, you know, once you have, I mean, look, balance sheet analysis is pretty, pretty in the grand scheme of things, pretty simple. Um, but then the second part of that is, okay, are, is there long-term reinvestment potential here? And those are the companies you really, I really want to zero in on. And then you're starting to make assumptions of margins on that specific industries as they're making the transitions and the, uh, the qualitative aspects of, of, uh, reinvestment, uh, uh, not just opportunities, but the capital allocation skills of those making those decisions. Um, so, you know, look. Simple price to book, liquidation value, qualitative analysis on off balance sheet assets, determination as to who's going to benefit from from those, uh, you know, from any cash generation and things like that, and then and then longer term, you know, all of the more traditional income statement uh, kind of views. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I I would say I'm a jack of all trades. I don't discriminate. Um, you know, where I find value, I look at value, I'll look at growth, and I'll look at special situations. Um, I think depending on what type of situation you're looking at, I think I put on a, you know, a different set of glasses to have a few on my desk. And um, 
I would say like, if you're buying, if you're a balance sheet investor, like Steven just described, um, and you're trying to buy $50, it's, it's very important to um, figure out what's going to cause that to be revalued to a dollar from 50 cents. Because typically if someone's trading at a 50 cent dollar, that's because the value of the dollar is either going down over time or the, the quality of the business isn't good or management is doing stuff that, you know, public and public market investors don't like. Maybe they're stealing from the company. Maybe they're just not running it well. They're losing market share. And so I think obviously when you're, when you say you're buying a 50 cent dollar, that dollar is a very abstract thing, right? It's not defined. Everyone has a different view on whether that dollar is worth 90 cents or 80 cents, and it could be declining over time. And so if you're wrong about the dollar and it's really worth 50 cents, like then there's really no, you're not going to make money. You, you, there's, you potentially will lose money. So the absolute valuation you think that it's worth, you're putting a lot of weight into that. Um, and it's a very important number because it's not growing quickly over time. If you're looking at growth companies, if you overpay or underpay by 20% or 30%, but you're right five years out and they're really growing the value of that business, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30% a year over that period of time. And you're convicted in that. And the, the management team is typically these companies when they trade at higher multiples like that, it's because the management team is doing what people want them to do. They're deploying capital well, they're competitively advantaged, they're in growing end markets. And so if you're convicted in absolute level of earnings five years out, you could be off by 20% on what it actually ends up being worth and still make a good return. So I think if you're buying 50 cent dollars, you wanna have a strong view that that dollar is actually worth a dollar and you wanna figure out what's gonna cause other people to realize that that 50 cent dollar should be worth a dollar and drive it up there over time. And whether it's a management team that decides to sell off assets and buy back stock, if it's an activist that gets involved and forces the management team out and puts a new management team in, um, stuff like that. I mean, if, I think you need more of a catalyst, whereas if you're buying a high quality growth company, you, your catalyst is earnings growth. And so your catalyst is just being right about the business over time. And, um, and so I think it really depends. Like if I find a new idea, it really depends on where, what angle I'm coming at it from, whether it's a value growth or special situation. And if it's a value company, I spend a lot of my time figuring out what I think it's worth today and what I think is going to cause people to realize that it's significantly undervalued today. If it's a growth company, I spend all my time trying to figure out what's the quality of this business and what's the growth formula, what's the growth algorithm, right? Like maybe they're growing revenue 5% a year. They're getting one to two, you know, percent extra through market expansion. And then they generate free cash flow and they use that free cash flow to buy back stock. Maybe they retire another 3% of their shares a year. So that gets you to 10% earnings growth. For me, it's personally 10% earnings growth sustainably isn't something that gets me super excited. But if that algorithm is 10% top line growth with three to 4% tailwind from margin expansion, and you know, all of a sudden you're a team's you know, earnings kager, I think that can get you excited. And if you buy it at a reasonable entry valuation, and you're right about the durability of that growth algorithm, you could make a lot of money. So I think, you know, in those situations, it's, it's, that's, that, that's, I kind of start looking at the quality of business. I look at the competitive landscape. I look at the management team. I look at historical capital allocation decisions to see if I, you know, if I agree with the decisions they've made, if they've made bad acquisitions. And so, I mean, there's no, there's no single way I would say I start. It really depends on what the thesis is. There are two, you know, there are two factors here that I think the three of us uh, look at 
uh, or have to have some sort of judgment and determination on long term that we haven't yet mentioned, and that's inflation and interest rates. And those are two wild cards going forward. I mean, clearly, as for the announcement yesterday, interest rates are going to remain very, very low for quite some time. What does that mean for inflation over time? Because when you're looking at that margin expansion, you're trying to make assumptions going out there, how much that gets, um, you know, how much of that is supported, how much of that gets eaten away. And I don't have a view on inflation necessarily. I don't have a view on interest rates other than they appear they're going to be low for some time. So that that supports certainly higher higher multiples because, you know, it's a risk-free rate. The alternative is that uh, there's alternatives to be in, be in companies that have reinvestment opportunities and not, uh, you know, have your earnings, have your, have your, your as, a, as a retired, you know, uh, someone in bonds or something like that. It's just it's not going to be able to support your lifestyle here on out. And so you have to get into equities. That's what the feds are, are trying to do here. And, you know, but what happens five or seven or 10 years out, if there's significant inflation, we have to have that as a factor in the certain industries, you know, that we're looking at and, and figure out how that's going to affect um, you know, margin, what kind of pricing power these things. And again, that's a qualitative factor that when you, you think about Buffett talking about moats from a very high level and a general perspective, uh, essentially these companies that we're making assumptions on five or seven or 10 years out, they need to have that pricing power. Otherwise inflation is going to destroy them. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, low rates for longer, which that's what that's what the goal is for now. No one really knows whether they're going to achieve that goal or not, because if inflation really takes off and they're not going to be able to keep rates as low as they want. But if you have low rates for longer, implicitly, that means you have slower economic growth for longer. Otherwise, if there's fast, if there's rapid economic growth, that leads to increase in demand above capacity. And then that leads to prices going up, inflation, and then rates have to go up to compensate, you know, people who own bonds for that inflation. And so if you're betting on low growth longer, but there are some subsectors of the market where that growth is durable, which is why these growth stocks, right? Like you're betting on low economic growth, low rates, but companies like Shopify and Microsoft and whatever, like their growth rate is unimpaired just because GDP is going to be 1% or 0% or one and a half percent or 2% forever. And if you actually believe their growth is unimpaired, then their 10 year out earnings power hasn't really changed, even though GDP expectations for every other industry have changed. And so like, yeah, you're discounting with these cyclical companies, you're discounting a lower earnings power five years out with a lower discount rate. They kind of offset, but with Microsoft or, you know, all these Shopify or whoever, you're not discounting a low, you're, you're not discounting a lower earnings power by a lower discount rate. You're discounting the same or maybe even a higher earnings number by a lower discount rate. And that's why you've seen these stocks kind of take off as, you know, this has become apparent to people. Um, so I, I think yeah. the other subsector of companies that could be held potentially if you do see inflation are companies, A, with pricing power, or B, companies that are heavily reliant on, on a fixed cost base that they spent in yesterday's dollars where, where, you know, the, the cost to replace those assets would go up over time. So even if it's a commodity product, no one's going to build incremental capacity until the margins of that commodity that is being sold go up substantially such that it, it provides a good return on the higher fixed asset. So um, I think if you're, you know, a levered company that relies on a big fixed asset base to, to generate earnings and inflation comes, I think 
potentially you could do okay. Um, and if you're a secular grower and now you have low rates with the same earnings power five years out, I think your shareholders will do okay. But, but yeah, if you're somewhere in the middle, it could be painful. If, if rates are staying lower because the economy is staying weaker, you don't have a lot of pricing power, you don't have a lot of fixed assets, you, you know, you're a staffing company, you have a lot of wage, you know, a big part of your op operating expenses are wages and wages start to go up but you don't really have a lot of pricing power, so your margins get squeezed. I mean, that's where I think you can get in trouble on those types of businesses. So I, I really, yeah, so I, I really think like the worst businesses to own in this environment are kind of ones that are mid-quality businesses because they tend to have, you know, about average valuation, but they're probably the worst positioned in an environment where we have weak economic growth um, for longer. I mean, if you're buying like the really garbagey stuff, but you're right on the business being more durable than the market thinks it is. And you're buying it for a really low valuation. I mean, if you're buying something for three times free cash flow, you're generating a 33% free cash flow yield on your investment. Over time, if you're right about that free cash flow being durable, it's hard not to make money. And if you're buying the really high quality stuff and you're right on the earnings power five years out, then it ends up being actually a pretty cheap investment on you know the price today relative to the earnings five years out. But if you're buying something that's just going to stagnate and you're paying you know 20 times earnings for it, I think you can get in trouble. So um, I think you have to you have to have, you have to take a view. Either the, the valuation is way too low, you need a big margin of safety, you need to figure out what's going to get that valuation up, or you need something that's a very high quality company where you're very confident in the earnings outlook you know over a five year period. I think in a low growth world, uh, you know, the present value of good earnings growth is very, very high, almost theoretically, in a zero rate world, it's theoretically almost infinite, but we know that that's not true. Um, and so like, I think you, what needs to be better differentiated, um, you know, people keep comparing this to 99 and I don't, I, I'm quite frankly, I don't think we've seen how crazy this can get yet. I think it can get, get, get quite a bit crazier. Um, and, you know, you, you sort of have to differentiate between just generic high top line growth and actual actual good growth because there's good growth and there's bad growth and if you're just pursuing growth for growth's own sake but um you know it's below the cost of capital you're destroying value with every sale you make so like i think that's an important consideration one that's probably not being made very well today between uh, among the growth companies just generally speaking there 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 are going to be there are going to be some good growth companies and some bad growth companies and sort of, sort of part of my job is to try to identify the companies with, with good growth and have some some insight on sort of what's the duration of that growth, what's the magnitude of that growth, and what is sort of the what what is the sort of the exit economics look like? And you know those those companies with good growth, the open-ended growth stories with lots of levers to pull, have I think justifiably high valuations at this point. Um, now there are some companies where the growth is not good growth and the just the valuations don't don't make any sense to me it's like uh you know the, the difference between stanley nichols and shrew bucks you know it's like unicorns and leprechauns you know it's it's, it's that kind of thing if you if you've uh, if you've ever seen the office uh so the rate environment to me it's just really hard um to have a solid prediction on what's going to happen because i think we're sort of in a brave new world that nobody's seen I mean, if we're going to compare this to 99, as we rang in the year 2000, the 10-year was north of 6%. The Fed funds rate was going north of 6%, and we're sitting here at zero. And so, in a world like that, does a does a 
um, you know, one of the biggest, best companies in the world trading at a high 30s multiple, or not a high 30s multiple, a high 20s multiple. Does that seem insane? They can buy, but it doesn't seem. Look, they can borrow 1%. Okay. Their earnings yield is 3% on a company like that. They can borrow 1%. Presumably, they can borrow unlimited and just buy back stock, and there's a, there's a spread there. So, yeah, it, you know, that, that supports those valuations. Right. So, if I could, so like, you know, it, it, I, just don't, I just don't think that we've quite seen how crazy it can get just yet with everything that's, that's sort of going on out there. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of, you know, you know wondering you know, for some of the biggest companies, you know, my partner, I did a podcast on, on, the, on price discovery and, that, and that ties into valuation, you know, are, are some of those biggest companies, is the valuation going to start to get divorced from the economics for, for basic mechanical reasons? And that's something that I worry about. I don't know what to do. But, um, you know, I think for some of these smaller things, you sort of, I, I don't, I tend not to get involved in anything where there's like a big valuation spread, unless I have some reason to think that that gap's going to close pretty quickly. And so I have, I asked myself a pretty simple question. I, like, like, uh, you're on, uh, I, I asked myself, I, I do a lot of different things and in each one is sort of, you know, has its own situation to it, but where, where value is more, there's like, there, like there's a clear valuation gap. You know, if everybody can see it, you gotta wonder what's going to close it. And I sort of generally ask myself a pretty simple question. Are things getting better? Or are they getting worse? Or are they saying the same for this? And I almost always, I almost always reject doing something unless I can say that things are getting better, you know. I, and I can see that, or I have some reason to believe that. And the reasons things get better are all, 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 all different kinds of reasons. Either activists come out, come on, and they kick out a management team that doesn't know what they're doing or wasting money. The company is, has some initiative that they're doing, and they're just simply going to stop it. Um, I read. Wow. I read, uh, one of my favorite things is like when people have money, like especially in smaller companies, if they have money losing divisions or pet projects, they just stop doing them. And the economic, like that, I, I found with some of the smaller stuff, like you know, you sort of need to put the numbers in the face of people in order for the market to get to recognize it. And when you have stuff like that going on, like that, that's just like a natural sort of catalyst for for that that valuation gap to start to close. So like you just have, there just has to be, in my view, there has to be something that's gonna it's going to close that gap pretty quickly because you could be sitting on it for many years and, you know, it just, it just kills your return. A, a, something doubling and it takes 10 years to double. It's not as good as if it takes three. So. Yeah. You know, that, that's, or, or if they destroy a bunch of value and it ends up not doubling, it just, now it's fairly valued after 10 years, you know, then it's also not a great outcome. But the, yeah. I mean, the most important question in that is it getting worse, staying the same or, 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 or getting better is can I tell? And, you know, you sort of have to be honest with yourself about whether or not you can, you can really tell. And the worst lies that you tell are the ones you tell yourself. So, you know, it, you know, it, I hope not to be on the, 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 on, on the, on the side of too many staying the same and there's no, no catalyst to close the gap or maybe getting worse. And I, I hope to avoid those as best I can. Yeah. You know, I actually take a little bit of a different view on catalysts. I, it's nice if it's there, but it, generally if it's there, I feel like other people know it's there as well. And so I'm, I'm actually okay with, I'm okay with the possibility of a value trap even as long as operate. I mean, the definition of value trap is, is, is bifurcated. And, and my definition is, is strictly operationally. 
You know, so I don't care about the stock price in and of itself because the companies I'm interested in are generally buying back shares anyway. If the stock price stays unnaturally low for a long time, that benefits me. And so that's not a value trap. I don't think any, any of us would define it like that. But some people do define value traps as just the stock price is stagnated for a long, long time. I'm okay with that. You know, but you also have to have those situations that, that there's still value being created at the company, whether because of buybacks, if it's a strictly balance sheet play, or whether it's their making... Uh, reinvestments into the company that have not yet shown up on the income statement, you know, those reinvestment opportunities. So I'm willing to sit there and wait for two, three, five years or, or longer, as long as operationally things are improving. A lot of these, especially small companies, they're kind of the one day stock. You know, they double one day, four years later. It's a good return, but you have to have the discipline to hold on to it during that time. You have to have the, the commitment to the operational improvements. And you also have, if you run a fund, you have to have an investor base that's willing to be patient as well. Yeah, I commend you for that. I mean, I I don't know that, that I could sit there for five years without a catalyst for something where I don't necessarily love the business and love what they're doing and just wait for the market to wake up and realize that it's undervalued. Um, I mean, to each their own, there's so many ways to skin a cat, but that's, that's a lot of patience. That's good. Um, well, but it's operationally, things have to be going well, right? So, and that's kind of going back to Bobby's original question that was submitted to him. Maybe he'll come up with the name of the person who submitted it so we can give credit here too at the oh, end. Oh, I got it. I just didn't want to interrupt the okay, flow. Okay. I mean, it's been so, it's going so good. Yeah, it was, it's, it was my mother. She sent in that, that question, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but, but that, that's the, you know, the challenge is, okay, we're not getting, the market is not realizing the price, but if you are confident that your analysis is correct operationally, it can be frustrating that the, that the rest of the markets are not appreciating it yet, but you still have to have that confidence that at some point they will. And so it does come down to, to the, the, the confidence. You have a view, you have to have a view on what that thing is. Otherwise, yeah. I, for me, I, I just can't get involved. If I, like I own stocks, where the headline multiple is cheap. And I think, you know, everyone sees how cheap the headline multiple is, but people don't trust that the earnings are durable and they think they're gonna go down. And I have conviction that the earnings are durable and they're gonna grow over time. And so like my catalyst at that point is like, we'll see in three years who's right. Like either the market's right or I'm right. And I'm gonna wait that out because I'm confident in my analysis. But if I don't think, the absolute valuation is on earnings is very cheap. And I don't think they're going to grow earnings a lot, but I just think like the price versus the replacement cost of the assets and the, you know, the value of the receivables is very low at that point. Like, I really don't know what would make the valuation. That's where I think it's more value trappish. Yeah. Where it's right. like a, a strictly balance sheet. I mean, it has to have that reinvestment opportunity over time. Yeah. There has to be buybacks or tender, you know, there's gotta be. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think I say long term catalyst. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think mostly when people think of value traps, they, there's, ba there's balance sheet ba value traps. That's what they're thinking of, you know, yeah. and it's actually a melting ice cube. And yep. that, that's going to be tough to have conviction on. And, and right yeah, 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 I agree. Um, I mean, in terms of like an example of something that, um, you know, what Gary described, like, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I mean, I own a stock right now that I, I bought a few months ago. Um, there was, it, it was, it, it came public via SPAC in 2016, uh, back before SPACs were a new hot thing in town. And, you know, a lot of SPACs back in the day burned a lot of investors. They came public and, you know, because they couldn't come public any other way potentially, or 
you know, they weren't able to be sold to a private equity firm for the same valuation. And so um, I bought into this back a few months ago where like people just got so tired of the company disappointing um, on, you know, they, delivering what they said they were going to deliver on. And they actually had some balance sheet issues um, because they almost ran out of money at some point over the last, you know, 18 months. And they had to go out and borrow money at 13% interest. And then when you spoke to the company, you kind of got a good sense of the fact that operationally they had implemented a bunch of changes that were going to cause them to fix the, you know, the, the, the things that caused them to miss earnings expectations for a few years, the quality of their, of their work for their customers was good. Um, their positioning within the industry was good, but they just had some operational issues that they very clearly articulated what they were changing about the business. And they started to show results. I mean, the margins were improving. Um, they started collecting their receivables more quickly, which allowed them to accumulate cash and, you know, they're going to be able to pay off their 13% debt at some point here in the next few months. And so like, as these things are getting better and better, the stock price wasn't reacting yet. Um, you know, the stock was trading for two times EBITDA and it's not a secularly challenged industry or end market. And so I went around asking everyone, I'm like, what am I missing here? And everyone's like, oh, they never deliver. They never deliver. They've burned everyone. It's not going to work. They never deliver. So I'm like, look, they're showing you that they're generating a ton of cash. They're showing you that the margins have improved and like you, the bet you're making now by saying they're not going to deliver is saying their improvement that they started to show is unsustainable and it's going to go back down. The bet I made by buying the stock was that I thought it was a durable, sustainable improvement in the operations and cash generating capabilities of the business. And so over time, as they continue to prove that out, the stock I believe will get valued more fairly. And when you buy something at that low evaluation, that's like a going out of business sale. You know, that's like these guys won't be around in two years. And so if you get that part right, that what they're showing you is actually durable and sustainable, I think you can make a lot of money in those situations. So I, I definitely agree. Like you need to see improvement if you're buying something at, that the market doesn't like. If something is very hated, I think you need to see if things, things need to be getting better for me to get, for me to get excited about them. So to kind of, to round out our conversation here, you know, we're, the question being that it was, you know, determining the current value of the company. And especially when we're looking at micro caps, you have a little bit of time to kind of figure out what the value might be before maybe you want to go in and take a position, you know, but like if, if we're looking at investors, maybe new investors that are watching this, that, you know, are looking at maybe some of the bigger names or even small cap and beyond, you know, 2 billion in market cap and beyond, you know, it's, a, it's very difficult in these types of markets where everything's going up more or less. I don't want to say everything, but more or less, everything's going up and trying to figure out, a, 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 Gary, more, more or less. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, but it, it's, it's, I can, I can show you the Morningstar style box chart that shows that it's probably just concentrated on, on the right hand side for the most part, but well, fair. Okay. Well, let's, okay. Okay. let's, there are things going up. There are there's things going up, you know, and, and the, I'd say the lay investors probably focused on the things that we all know are just going up, you know? So, I mean, how in times like these for investors that maybe just be looking at, at those types of companies, because I think we can all agree in my, micro caps, they're going to find inefficiencies, whether it's a crazy, you know, bull market, crazy, especially in a crazy bear market. But, um, you know, how should you think about valuation then if you're a new investor looking at maybe some of the more mainstream names out there? You know, Now's not a good time to be a new investor. I mean, this is a very dangerous environment and it's, a, it's an unknown environment. 
there's certainly opportunities out there, but if you're a new investor, I would just stay away for a while, try to learn more about businesses and try to get a, a continue to gain a broader perspective. I don't think now's the time to play around. And the reason for that is, like we've talked about on this show, there are so many qualitative aspects that are so important today, more so than they were in the past. And you need to have an understanding, a broad understanding of, of industries, of competitors, of things of that nature in order to make reasonable determinations of future value in, in order to then discount to today. And so I, I just, I think it's, a, it's one of the most dangerous environments to be in uh, for someone new who, who has not been, you know, do, it does not have that broad perspective that's necessary. So I would, I would recommend go start reading, uh, reading about different industries, Re read the 10 Ks, do the work, get into all, all of that, but, you know, maybe, maybe hold off on actually putting money into the market now. Although it's it a great time to be a serious full-time investor, or you just want to be, you know, you want to have a stock portfolio or whatever. Um, if you want to be a serious full-time investor, there's a whole education process that, that, that kicks off and entails it. If you want to do this sort of as a hobby and you sort of dink around with it and whatever, um, I would encourage people to try to understand what makes a good or bad business and that first. And be more Peter Lynch than Ben Graham. Because yeah. if you're more Peter Lynch than Ben Graham, you can stick through. You, you understand what you own. That'll make you more likely to see it through. Um, that would be my that that would be my advice. Now, if you want to be a serious full-time investor, that's a whole different a whole different journey. Yeah, I agree with Gary. Agree. Cool. All right. Well, with that, I think uh, that's a great way to end it. Your own. By the way, I was shaking my head because. I could, you know, being in Williamsburg, I'm hearing the blowhorn. It's like every time you made a point, it's like, you know, so I thought that was, thought that was pretty funny. Um, there's, so, there's a construction right across the street from me right now. It's kind of annoying, but. <laughs> I, I love it. By the way, before we get to everybody's uh, social media, I want to give the shout out to uh, Steven's mom. I'm just kidding. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, at, at Mictros, M-I-C-T-R-O-S. Trust Claire, thank you for the question. This was a great topic today. So with that, um, everybody, let's get your social media where people can find more information. Stephen, let's go with you first. Yeah, thanks, Mom. Uh, it, my uh, fund is at arquitos.com, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S, Arquitos Capital. Uh, also encourage you to look at Willow Oak Asset Management, where we provide operational services uh, outsourced uh, for, for funds and firms, uh, willowoakfunds.com. There's a great resource center we just released earlier this week. It might be interesting for any aspiring and emerging fund managers out there, willowoakfunds.com. And then I'm on uh, Twitter at Stephen underscore Keel. It's K-I-E-L. And uh, you can find me and interact with me there. Happy to do it. There we go. And Gary, I know Eric usually does all the sign-offs, but I, I this is this is your test. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of space out while he's doing them. I'll do my best. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've got a website at creativehealthpartners.com for RIA. Uh, we have a blog there. We sometimes write some stuff. We do write a quarterly letter. You can always email us uh, in the info at creativehealthpartners.com if you want to get on our quarterly client letter. It's not, we don't write about specific ideas, so it may not be of interest to everybody. Um, let's see what else. We have a LinkedIn page and uh, we have a Twitter handle, but we're, we're working on getting that all set up so we can use it. What's your home address? If you could share that. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, then I'll pick up from Gary. You can also listen to the podcast that he co-hosts with Eric Fure 
at uh, oh, in right. the market trench. Yeah, that 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 show uh, at uh, <laughs> in the market trenches Uh You can also uh, list, watch actually watch the video version of it on youtubecom Wire. So uh, go check that out. And your own close us out, man. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, the handle is one main capital, the number one, and then the words main capital spelled out. Um, you can DM me over there. If you want to chat about any names, you can also email me your own at one main capital.com, or you can learn more about one main capital at one main capital.com. So. Awesome. Well guys, thank you so much for joining today. Again, you can find me on Twitter at Bobby K craft, B O B B Y K K R A F T spin the investors round table. Great topic. Thank y'all for joining today. Thank you. Thank you.